0: We are over at Ezekiel chapter 18 to start. This is where the false proverb came out that is refuted. In verse 1 of 18 it says, The word of the Lord came to me again, saying, What do you mean when you use this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying, The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge? As I live, says the Lord God, you shall no longer use this proverb in Israel. Now Jeremiah also speaks of this in Jeremiah thirty-one twenty-nine and Lamentations five seven. So this was not just a proverb that Ezekiel's folks heard of; it was something that came from the homeland. And apparently, the group down with Jeremiah they're saying the same thing that Ezekiel's hearing. Deuteronomy twenty-four and sixteen it's it speaks the opposite. It says that you that each one will be put to death for their own sins, not for the sins of the fathers. Now, here in this particular chapter, he gives three examples of situations where that sin is not passed on. That each is responsible for their own sins. So, that he's not just saying it's not true. He's showing you real examples. And these are probably ones that mean something more to them in their day than just being arbitrary examples as we might think they are. Now, God gets... He doesn't get any pleasure out of the wicked's death. That's, that's not something God likes. That's why even when the, the wicked return to Him and repent, there's joy in heaven for it. I think we are sometimes... I know myself. I'll speak for myself. How's that? <laughs> sometimes I see some people that are involved in some wicked things and when they uh, come to a place of passing or no longer putting that wickedness on other people, Teaching people in that wickedness or leading them in that wickedness, I kind of feel a little bit of gladness. Apparently, God doesn't. So when I, when I step into that role, I'm not necessarily feeling all the heart of God. I kind of back with Ezekiel when he was uh <laughs> he was saying some things, and and God says, "No, I'm not in that." And he had the wrong heart in the matter. Sometimes we can get the wrong heart, even though our intentions are good. We can get the wrong heart on these things, and and be glad. On that way, sometimes we'll we'll have Jonah's heart. When we see the wicked repent, we get upset. We wanted them to receive the judgment that they've uh, been accumulating. Verse 25 says, Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not fair. Hear now, O house of Israel, is it not my way which is fair, and your ways which are not fair? So they wanted to say to, to the Lord, this isn't fair. You are holding us accountable for something that we didn't do. And God is saying, uh, no, I am fair. And of all the people standing here, who do you think is fair, you or me? <laughs> so, most people, we think things are unfair if people are not doing it my way. Because my way is the most fair way. Because I certainly have uh, considered all the things that ought to be considered. And the fairness that I see is the fairness that I think ought to go on. But whose perspective is better, ours or God's? Most of the time what we determine is fair is because of the perspective that we have on the, on the thing. And I may not have the right perspective. I may be looking at it one way. And it's not that that way is false, it's just that that's not the only way to look at it. Brother Hagen used to always use this example for us. He said, if you climb up on the mountain on one side and look at the view, you get one view. But if you climb up on the mountain the other way, you get a different view. Both views are right. You can't say that because I'm looking and this view is right, your view is wrong. That wouldn't be, be right. One view, you might have a, a view of the ocean. Another one, you might have view of other mountains. Another view, you might have views of a city. Uh, none, of, none of those views are wrong. It's just your perspective on the thing. And it's sometimes really hard for us to step out of our perspective and look at it through someone else's. We we have our way of looking at it. No, I'm looking over here and there's mountains over here. No, no, I'm looking over here and there's ocean. There's no ocean. There's only mountains. <laughs> and... Uh, We have to be able to step back and say, God, you have a better perspective on this than I have. Because God is certainly able to see the oceans, the city, and the mountains. He can see all the views together. Now, who would sow such a contrary thought into the hearts of men to say that God is unfair? To give us a perspective that would seem that God is completely unfair in all these things. And that our way is right. Well, I think we know who would who would be sowing those things, because if he could put a wall between us and God, he puts a wall between us and his wisdom and his perspective. Now, he ends this chapter with a call to cast off their sins. Looks like I misspelled sins, at least on my outline, had to fix that on your outline there. It's supposed to be sins, we're missing an end. Sometimes when I have these really long outlines on here, I hit backspace and the cursor is not where I think it is and I don't see what it did. (laughs) That's probably what happened there and my end got uh, deleted. But it ends with a call to cast off sins and repent. We have to stop blaming our troubles on the past. Stop blaming our troubles on the unfairness of God. It's just a distraction to keep us from acting on the present. God wants us to act on the present. What are you doing What sins are you involved with? What do you need to take care of? The enemy wants us to look at things we can't control and we can't change. Because that leads us to a hopeless condition or just an angry condition. We're just mad at people because other people have done this to us. Other people have put us in there. And that's where Israel is. It was the sins of our fathers. They're the ones who sinned and that's why this judgment has come upon us. That's why they came up with that proverb. And God says, no, it is is for you. And the rest of the chapters we're going to have in here are going to have a lot to do with this. Now, the application we gave you on this was, where do we see this attitude in the sins of the fathers today? And I gave you four examples, and you could probably dig up a whole lot more than that. I just gave you four way back when we went over this. One was Nazi Germany. How many people still look at Germany today through the sins of what the Nazis did? I know I was guilty of that for the longest time. I didn't like my last name because it reminded me of that. I didn't like watching World War II movies, especially if they were realistic because it reminded me of that. And that sometimes we had the attitude of sins of the fathers coming down on those people today. Now those, those uh, Germans that are over there probably have nothing to do with what had gone on with the, with the Nazis, but the attitude that we have can sometimes sometimes do that. Soviet Russia, the, um, the sins of that country in their past, it wasn't just when they became communist, way back when they had the czars and the deaths that they inflicted on people. If you have listened to Rick Renner for any length of time, you have uh, heard him tell the story uh, when he's there in, in Russia of the magnificent church that's there that has the seven domes. Anybody know the story of this, the Church of the Seven Domes? It just goes to show how ruthless this, these people were. So this particular czar who made this, and I, I think it was Ivan. I'm not positive, but I think it was Ivan. At least he's the one who comes to mind anyway. He, um, he wanted to build the most beautiful church in the world. And so he hired the best architects of the day and then got the best builders. And after the architects designed it, he put out their eyes so that they would never be able to draw anything more beautiful than what they had made here. At the um, uh, conclusion of the building of the, of the church, they executed the builders because they didn't want them to ever be able to build anything more beautiful than what this church was. And the seven domes of the church represent the seven kings that he had conquered. And so as they dedicated each dome, they executed one of the kings. So that's, uh, that's the history behind that, that. That's some bloodthirsty people right there. That was before they became communist Russia. And the communist party came up because of such, such atrocities, atrocities that the uh, czars were doing. And so they had the revolution. And then they became, uh, just as evil as uh, the ones that they overthrow. And you remember that book, Animal Farm? That was one of those uh, books that was written to highlight the evil that was going on in the revelation revolution. It was started to overthrow evil, but evil became very much a part of that. There are so many dead bodies in the area of Siberia that the cold pushes them up through the ground. And if you go walking through some parts, you'll see bones and uh, uh, pieces of human remains all over. That uh they executed actually more Jews, I believe than Germany did, and uh, of course a lot of other people as, as well uh, this was Lenin, and this was Stalin. these folks the, the brutality that they had was was horrendous its It was difficult for many of our uh, leaders at the time to partner with the Russians because they knew how evil they were, but they didn't see any other way to stop. The evil of the Nazi regime except to partner with them and if uh, getting into more of a history lesson here than I was intending to but when they were closing in they, we were coming in from the area from France and Russia was coming in from what was called a, I believe the eastern front and there were some uh, generals who wanted to annihilate the enemy as they went through which would you would go much slower if you uh, want to do that, there were other generals who wanted to just take the territory as fast as they can, and then come back and clean up whatever pockets they missed, because then we would take more territory. Now the latter general, the, the the former generals, won, and we went through slower and annihilated everything. But that gave more of the land to the Soviets as they came through. So the Iron Curtain covered more territory than it really needed to. We were trying to. Uh, there are many people who wanted to prevent them from having control over any of these countries, because we knew what they would do. And um, anyway, a lot more history can get into than that. But sometimes you look at Russia, and we, we think of those things, and uh, uh, Brother Rick talks about the Russians all the time, and what a beautiful uh, group of people that they are. And all, if all you had was the history of the czars, and the revolution, and some of the things that are going on there, you'd have a hard time seeing that or believing that. And having that same heart. So sometimes the sins of the fathers still come uh passed on back today. The Empire of Japan, too, the the they they were they were brutal. Uh they killed people. Uh Italy was the same way. And the ruler there were just, just just massacring people. And it just was um It was was terrible. The emperor expected people that if, all right, we're not going to win this war, so you're going to kill as many people as you can, and that's where the kamikazes came from. It was from the the evilness of this regime, and they sold enough people on it that they had people who would fly their planes after they dumped all of their bombs, and they would just be a guided missile in the thing. Even in this country, the, the idea of slavery, the sins of the fathers should be passed on to all those and while well, we can keep on going, there are just so many places where the sins of the fathers is tried to be passed on to those that are that are here, even uh, um, some of the things with the Native Americans. Uh it depends on what side of the perspective that you get, but um, today they mostly want to talk about the brutality that was done to them, and we kind of forget the brutality that was being offered by them. And when they came in and they raided a the place, they killed everyone, everyone. And they took their scalps. And they started a lot of the evil that was going on there. Uh, and then, of course, we rose up, and I don't know that we were all that good either. I know there's a lot of things that uh, were done in there that, boy, it makes you cringe. Why in the world did they have such massacres like this? And Especially when they were slaughtering them when there was no weapons in their hands. But there was evil on both sides. And it's just, it was, it was terrible the way that it all came out. But no matter what we have in in here, what we learn from this is that God says the sins of the fathers are not being passed on by the sons or onto the sons as far as God is concerned. Even though they have a proverb that says this, basically saying we are free from guilt because God is holding us accountable for what our fathers did. God is saying, I am not holding you accountable. And now on these next number of prophecies, we're going to see a number of things that are brought out through this. In uh, chapter 19, we have the young lions that are discussed. And the lioness represents the royal line of David. The first cub would probably be King Jehoaz. He seems to have been the one who wished to side with the up-and-coming Babylonians instead of the Egyptians. And Jeremiah 22, 10 through 12, we'll show you some things from that. So, being for the Babylonians or for the Egyptians did not make one for God. Sometimes we can lose perspective on this. We know that through Jeremiah and through Ezekiel, they're prophesying you must surrender to the Babylonians. Well, just because you agreed with that and decided to side with the Babylonians didn't make you on God's side. There were many people who were for the Babylonians, but they were not for God. They just saw that as a better side to be on. They weren't yielding to the word of God. They were yielding to their own wisdom. And then other people yielded to their own wisdom and wanted to go to the side of the Egyptians. So he continues here with these lions and the history of the sons of Josiah continues. Uh, lioness and her cubs are replaced with a vine and its branches in verse 10. So we leave the idea of the lions and the cubs and we go on to the vine and its branches. You remember this was used back in chapter 15 and 17. In verse 13 of this chapter, it says, And now she is planted in the wilderness. This signifies the coming complete exile to Babylon in 586 and the destruction of Jerusalem. So when he says she is planted in the wilderness, we're saying that everything that is there is going to be planted in the wilderness area over here in Babylon. It's not completely destroyed, just trampled in the desert. So there was still going to be a remnant. There are other prophecies that would come for other nations that would talk about complete and utter destruction. But Jerusalem was not one that said... It would be completely destroyed, just trampled in the desert. So some things, uh, a small uh, group would, uh, would survive. In verse 14, it said there was no strong branch. Basically, there was no strength left to support a ruling scepter or a leader, a king. There wouldn't be any strength left to do that. There still would be a vine, but it would not be strong enough to handle a, a king or a leader. And we see that that did not occur. They did not get a king until Jesus came. So the vine went from a place where it could flourish to a place where it almost couldn't survive. And this was because of the sins that they had done. Now the chapter concludes the prophecies that began in chapter 12 about the fall of Judah and the destruction of Jerusalem. Why did this all happen? And Ezekiel gave us five reasons for why these things were happening. You can write these down if you want, but they're in your original notes if you just want to go back there and take a look at those. The five reasons were, first, they rebelled. There there was a failure to submit to God's chastening and they rebelled in the face of captivity. The second reason was they rejected divine revelation. They ignored the true prophets and listened to the false ones who said only what the people wanted to hear. So they rejected divine revelation that came through God's prophets. And they decided to accept what was false. People of the light ought to be able to recognize a word from the light and a word from the darkness. They were not recognizing that and they rejected the truth. The third was reliance. They were relying on foreign alliances for security rather than on God. That's a problem that we can also fall into too. We have to have a reliance on God and not a reliance on anything else. They became unfruitful. They failed to be fruitful as God had intended them to be. We are called to be fruitful. They were called to be fruitful, but they were not. And lastly, they were unfaithful. And there's a long history of unfaithfulness to God. And in these prophecies, we are given a good bit of the history of their unfaithfulness. As we close this one out, we saw the good or bad people who take a position... They have no legal claim or godly call to are not seen as legitimate by God. We saw this in the way he kept referring to the king that they had as the prince, not the king. The rich and most of Ezekiel's prophecies were dated on upon The last king, the legitimate king that they saw who was in exile over in Babylon. They would always say in the fifth year, that was his captivity. So Zedekiah was never seen as a true king. But he took that position. Many times people will take a position that God has not called them to. They have no legal right to or no uh, uh, no right by God to be in. But they take it. In the, this day, we may not have kings as much, but we certainly have people who who stand in authority in the body of Christ. and Many of those people just take that position. They, they were not appointed. All through history, we saw people who took positions in the church as leaders who were evil, who did the same thing that Pharisees did, they would kill if you stood in their way of power. And that has been well documented in history. One of the things that hinders me from researching some of the centuries of history that we have, boy, that period of time I sure didn't like. But punishment, not reward, awaits them. Even today, the people who take on a role that God has not called them to, punishment, will be coming to them, not a reward from God. They're doing it thinking they're going to get a reward from God, but that's not coming. The two kings are betrayed as lions in the allegory, but they did not amount to what they could have been because, again, they did not follow and they did not do all the things that God had said through His prophets. If there is a failure to obey God as we we know, it will result in a weakened life, ministry, and reward. I have a responsibility to obey God to the degree that I know. Just because I am ignorant of some things doesn't mean I'm excused. Because what I do know, I'm expected to know more. I'm expected to grow in that knowledge. And if I refuse to grow, if I refuse to develop the knowledge of God that I have, God will still hold me accountable for what I should have learned, had an opportunity to learn, but decided not to learn. So failure to learn all we can and walk in the way we learn will result in us becoming less than God intended and even could foresee. In a weakened state like the vine came to, we will not be able to support the scepter of rulership that is part of the body of Christ we have a legal right to. We're called to be rulers and everybody, I hear charismatics all the time like we are rulers, we reign with Christ and all this sort of stuff but they don't sustain a life that can handle the rulership. So even though there are going to be lions and there are going to be cubs and there are going to be people born to the house of David, there was not strength to support that. We have to make sure that we live a life that we can support the rulership, the kingship that we claim that we have a right to. So don't be, as was the case here, don't be dissatisfied with the rivers you are planted by. It is dissatisfaction with what they had that caused Israel to seek after what others had and rebelled against and rejected what brought them life. This is the case with Christians all over the place. We have what God planted in our life to bring us life. And we're looking out there and seeing what the world has and look at all the things they get to do. And I want to be able to do some of those things. And and I don't like that I can't. And the enemy tempts us and we begin to, to stray. I'm not happy being here by this river. I'm going to go on out over here and, and uh, grab some of these other things. and Just in, in one area, you could certainly name other ones, but just look at some of the people that had got caught up in drugs. They had a nice life, a decent life. Uh, they were making some money, otherwise they probably wouldn't be able to buy the drugs to begin with. And then they fell into the, the drug market, and, and uh, uh, those drugs took over their life, and they became addicted, and they weren't able to do the things they had done before that made them productive. And these things just took them over, and uh, that's the that's the mark of the devil. That's what he loves to do. And then we came to Ezekiel 20. Now, I laid this this outline out the same way I did the other one. I gave you the number. Number 18 for this one is the number of the lesson, the title of it, and the date in which it was there. So if you want to look up any of those and just go back to the original one, you can. So this was uh, January of this year. We came to Ezekiel chapter 20. And it came to pass in the seventh year, in the fifth month, on the tenth day of the month, that certain of the elders of Israel came to inquire of the Lord and sat before me. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, speak to the elders of Israel and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Have you come to inquire of me? As I live, says the Lord God, I will not be inquired of by you. Will you judge them, son of man? Will you judge them? Now this sounds a whole lot... Like what we heard before back in chapter 14 when the elders came to Ezekiel and asked to ask a question only to find God less than favorable <laughs> to, to their questions. And here we find the same thing again. In chapter 14, it was because of idols in the heart. God says, should I let myself be inquired of at all by them? Here the reasons not given, but so we can kind of dig out some things that uh, maybe it shows us some of what that might be. So this prophecy begins a new series of messages. The siege of Jerusalem is about three and a half years away. We never hear their question, but the timing would seem to indicate it had something to do with a battle that had impact on the power struggle between Egypt and Babylon. So they probably saw this battle. They probably saw who won. They had some questions. What's this going to mean? Does this mean that your prophecies are wrong? Stuff like that. So instead of answering their questions, God gives Ezekiel a word about Israel's history of rebellion. Now many times when we see something that occurs naturally and it causes us to doubt the true word of God and we come to ask the question, we're not really coming to ask a question, we're coming to gloat. Alright, what you say about this? Because it doesn't seem like what you're saying is coming about. So what's God had to say now? And it's more that kind of a, kind of a thing. So that's why I say we can kind of dig this out and probably figure out what the question was and God says, I don't have any time for your question. I got a word for you though. Now he says in this this, uh, passage, when I chose Israel, this is a covenant uh, reference. He's referring to the covenant that they are covenant people. Because of the covenant, God commanded them to keep from idols. That was part of the covenant. But they rebelled. Verse 8 talks about their rebellion. And instead of judgment, mercy was given. In verses 10 through 17 in the wilderness, mercy was given. So mercy was given when they were in Egypt, servant idols, mercy was given in the wilderness. Mercy was given um, uh, to the next generation, the generation that came, that, uh, that came out of Egypt. When they were in the wilderness, mercy was given. The generation after that, mercy was given to them. Mercy was given to those who occupied the land. So once they came in and they occupied the land, and we have the period of judges, mercy was given to them. They deserved to be judged. They were doing wrong things. Because of the wrong things they were doing, they were plundered by their enemies. The Midianites were one who came up oftentimes. Gideon was raised up for one time. Others were raised up others. But mercy was given to those who occupied the land. Verses 28 and 29 talk about the high places. Verses 30 and 32 talked about the current rebellions that were going on. Let's uh, read 31 and 32. For when you offer your gifts and make your sons pass through the fire, you defile yourselves with all your idols, even to this day. So so shall I be inquired of you, O house of Israel? As I live, says the Lord God, I will not be inquired of by you. What you have in your mind shall never be when you say, we will be like the Gentiles, like the families in other countries, serving wood and stone. So when they make their sons pass through the fire, he says, "You you defile yourselves. There are other references here that talked about the firstborn. They would offer the firstborn to these idols. Now, in the law, what happened to the firstborn? There was, there was an offering they would make for the firstborn to redeem the firstborn. Instead of redeeming the firstborn for God, they offered the firstborn as a sacrifice to God. Now, the firstborn of all cattle was supposed to be sacrificed to God, but not the firstborn of the people. But they came to the place where they, uh, when they, and whatever they was, they were worshiping. Their firstborn was to be sacrificed to their idol. Now, how's that a slap in the face to God? God says, "I don't want your firstborn being killed. I want them to grow and to develop and to do things." And they were taking their firstborn and doing that. Then, of course, they expanded it from there, and they just started bringing other babies just to worship these these things. And God detested it. God said, "I, I didn't even imagine that you would get this." Now, of course, God knew it ahead of time, but who would who would ever imagine that they would do something like that? But you even look at today, the people, how they flock to religions that are abusive, that are controlling, because there is a satanic pull to these things. And there is a satanic pull to anything that would destroy the, the offspring, like this one here. And that's why God is so much against it and why it brings a nation down. There are many nations after Israel that this type of uh, treatment of unborn or newly born uh, infants uh, brought them down. Uh, I know specifically Rome. Rome was beginning to do this. Uh, They did it as a point of convenience. It became a place with the, the Romans that they didn't want to be inconvenienced with the children. And so what they would do is after they were born, they would put a pillow over them and they would suffocate them. Now, what happened with that was they had less Romans to make up the army. So they had to start to hire out and get some of the nations that they had subdued and bring them in. So at the time when Jesus comes onto the scene, most of the army is made up of locals. It's not made up of Romans. There are some Romans that are there, but most of it is made up of locals. Now, if you were through the end times class, uh, the last time we went through that, we, we spent a lot more time on that aspect and showed you that a lot of the Roman soldiers were of Muslim descent. So they hated Israel. And so you understand some of the things that they were doing, especially when they came in to destroy the, the city. Now, they came in with a, an intense desire to destroy the city, not just to conquer it. But... That comes in the, in the play from the, the things that Rome was, was, Rome was doing there. And other nations fell into this as well. If you ever do a, a search on this, you can check out some of the other nations, some of the other kingdoms that were there and what they were, were doing. Germany did this not with their, not with the Germans, but with others that were in the country. And they did a lot of infanticide to try and, uh, purge the, uh, uh, what do you, what do you call it? The, uh, the gene pool, I guess that was, that was there. And to get rid of those that were weak, uh, we learned about this even in the area we were, Remember, we were breeding white shepherds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, white shepherds one of one of those things that Hitler thought was weak because the, it was a recessive gene, and there weren't that many of the white shepherds. And so he saw them as weak, and he tried to wipe out the white shepherds through through breeding. That they were born white, they would kill them. And um, uh, but they did survive, and. <laughs> Uh, they they continued to go on and and uh, and we had them here we were breeding them but um, not everybody is aware of the fact that German shepherds are not just the sables that uh, most people do there's I believe there's a red one and I don't know how much red they have on them but I think there's a uh, a red shepherd you don't you don't see them I think they're probably the least common but there's also a black shepherd have you ever seen a black shepherd all black mm-hmm. and just like the white is all white the uh, they they have that too so and they're 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 gorgeous. Oh, I think they're beautiful dogs. But um, German shepherds shed a lot of hair. So you will see a lot of white hair or a lot of black hair or a lot of whatever color of the hair they have <laughs> all over your house and boy did we ever. But anyway, we don't do that anymore. <laughs> but um, this uh, chapter ends with a promised regathering of Israel by a strong hand of God. Verse 45 tells them though that before the restoration can occur, judgment must come. It's gotten to the point that judgment has to come. It, it can't be But Remember even Josiah's day. Josiah read these things. Oh, man, we are in trouble. Let's repent. And God says, hey, I appreciate your repentance. It's great, but this is coming. It's it's already gone too far. Judgment must come. If that was a judgment must come in Josiah's day, how much more now? When they have uh, just gone after that sin even more. Once Josiah was out of the picture, they went right back into all that stuff that they had uh, before. As long as we walk in a mentality that justifies our wicked ways, we cannot understand the grace and mercy God has bestowed upon us. I can't understand it. I can't see it. I won't see it, because I walk in a mentality that justifies our wicked ways. When we look at a lot of these people that are in the news, a lot of the people that have these weird ideas of of, of wickedness, and and you hear them talk about stuff, and you say, "How in the world can you have that? How can you see the world this way?" It's because they walk in a mentality that justifies their wicked ways. They cannot understand the grace of God. They cannot see the mercy of God. And because of these things, they cannot understand the things of God. And they come out with these outlandish things about what the Bible is saying. One of the many reasons I have the opinion of Nancy Pelosi and others that I do because they walk in a way that justifies their wickedness. And they are as wicked as that people I've ever seen. Just, just wicked in their discussion. And you hear them talk about the Bible and the, their understanding of it. And it's like, how do you even see God in that? But they, they do. But that's how they do it. And if you understand this about it, then you don't try and figure all that out. But when we come to the place in low, and loathe what we have done. And I look at what I've done, oh man, I can't believe that I did that. And I feel the remorse for it, but more than that, I feel the need to turn. Our eyes become open to see what, who God is and His great mercy upon us. That's what we need to turn. That's what has to happen for any of these people to turn from their evil ways. And we'll see this happen. And even in this, this short period of Israel's history, we saw this happen with the, uh, uh, the one very evil king who had uh, just led Israel into some of the e- most evil thing? Hezekiah's son, just his name went out for me. Um, come on. Manasseh. Thank you. Uh, just such evil. And then he was taken away and he repented. And he came back and he tried to undo all the evil that he had done. And he did for a little while. But when he died, his son came in and brought it right back to where, where it was. But he needed that revelation. He got that revelation. He saw, oh, this is all wrong. I shouldn't have been doing this. And he, he made a, a change. We'll probably see him in heaven. As evil as he was and as much evil as he brought into the land of Israel and how much judgment he brought upon that land by the things he did, yet we will probably see him because he turned and came to God. That's how great the mercy of God is. Mm -hmm. Most of us would say, nope, I don't care what you do. Nope. (laughs) You're done. He killed a lot of people. He uh, executed a lot of innocent people and just did things against the people of God, against the things of God. But God still had mercy upon him. For the application there, we saw the events between the armies of Egypt and Babylon painted a picture for the people. It seemed to be saying that the words of the prophets not named Ezekiel and Jeremiah were speaking truth. Now, if you never had events in your life paint such a picture, you probably will. Some of you probably have. You've had events and they paint a picture. This doesn't seem like what God said is true. It's painting a picture for me and it looks like what God said is it's not going to happen for me. So these people likely came to Ezekiel with a stated desire to inquire of God when actually they wanted to point out how things were going against that word. It's another version of has God really said? And they are speaking words inspired by the enemy against the words spoken by God. Boy, you do not want to be in a place like that. And they had no problem being there. No matter how things look or what kind of a turn life takes, continue to stand on what God says, what He has said to you, and what He has spoken through His Word. Do not ever let what you see going on around you stir you from what God has said. If God said it, it will about we went on to ezekiel 21 and verse 1 says again in the ninth year in the 10th month on the 10th day of the month the word of the lord came to me saying son of man write down the day or the name of the day this very day the king of babylon started his siege against jerusalem this very day now no one else in the city knows this yet this is the word of knowledge no one knows that this is going on did i have something wrong Well, that's interesting, that's what I have. Huh? in the word of the Lord came and came, man set your face towards Jerusalem. with huh. Oh no, I have Ezekiel twenty four, I wrote twenty four down. Why do I have twenty one in there? Okay. Wow. We shouldn't be at twenty four. Why do I have twenty four out there? I must have pulled that one out earlier. I, okay. <laughs> I probably pasted it in the wrong spot. Yeah, give me one and two because I won't have one and two up on there. <laughs> yep, 21, one and two. Twenty one. Okay, well, oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> now, son of man, set your face toward Jerusalem, preach against the holy places and prophesy against the land of Israel mm-hmm. and say to the land of Israel, thus says the Lord, behold, I am against you and I will draw my sword out of its sheath and cut off both. And say to the land of Israel, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am against you, and I will, dr- I will draw my sword out of its sheath, and cut off both righteousness and wicked from you. Because I will cut off both righteousness and wicked from you, therefore my sword shall go out of its sheath against all flesh from south to north. That all my flesh may know that I, the Lord, have drawn my sword out of its sheath. It shall not return any more. So righteousness and wickedness will be cut off. And then the question would come, how does this fit with the word about the sour grapes? If the righteous and the wicked are going to be cut off, what about what God said about the sour grapes? I don't witness, I don't visit the sins of the fathers on the on the sons. Each one will die for their own sins. So we went over the fact that the righteous were not being punished for the sins of others, but they did suffer due to the sins of others. Just like in this country. When we have the, the sins of other people, that they do things that are sinful, that are wrong, that are hateful, that are born of hate. Other people suffer, but they're not being punished. So there's a suffering that goes on because they were in the nation where these things had, had gone, but they were not themselves being punished. Just like uh, just like I think will be today as well as was in the day of, of Israel when you had these people sacrificing the babies and God abhorred it. Oh, God, how many times does God say in Ezekiel? How many times does He say in Jeremiah? How many times in the other prophets does He he say how much He abhors it? He hates it. Not everyone in Israel accepted this form of worship. And there were a number of people who hated this just as much as God did. Now, the nation is going to be punished for this sin. But those people, though they may lose some things because the nation is being punished, they may suffer some things But in the end, they do not receive the punishment for the sin that those who participated it did. And so that's where the difference is is being made. Sometimes the righteous die, sparing them from the coming evil. In Isaiah 57.1, that one we're going to read over. (laughs) The righteous perishes and no man takes it to heart. Merciful men are taken away while no one considers that the righteous is taken away from evil. I think I told you I wasn't going to read that one, but it looks like we—I had it—I had it written out in mind. So. so he shows mercy on them because they were righteous. Over in Second Kings twenty-two twenty, we see that Josiah. God says, "I'm going to take him to his fathers, so that the evil that's coming upon this nation won't come upon him." So sometimes death was there to protect you. Look, it's better that you die and come home now instead of staying there and uh, encountering all the things that are going to be coming. And so, um, now that's not the best, that's not God's best way. God's best way has nothing to do with that. But the nation has put themselves in a place where they can't get God's best way. And so he says to Josiah, look, this thing is coming and we will remove you. Now in the last chapter, the people were complaining about the parables. Just tell us what you mean, they said so here they get what they asked for and forget the parable you're all going to die sword's coming going to wipe you all out now Ezekiel is sad at the news even though it shows he was right and the false prophet's false can you imagine that this is how much he loves his country even though what he is prophesying now is talking about something coming that's going to show he was right in what he spoke about the word of God And the rest of them weren't, remember what they, they come to challenge. And this word is saying, saying, hey, I'm showing this stuff. They're going to see that this is right. He's still sad. How many of you, if God says, all right, this is coming now and it's going to show that you were right, you're thinking, all right, now they're, now they're going to see. Y'all didn't believe me? (laughs) Now you're going to see. Yeah, now you're going to get it. And here's Ezekiel. He's sad at the news. Now Babylon would come to a crossroad. One direction takes them to Jerusalem, the other to Ammon. Now what words would be in the mouth of false prophets when the crossroad road was reached? Because when Babylon came to the crossroads and we spent some time on it, they used divination to figure out which way do we go first. Which tells you that when they left Babylon, they did not make a decision as to who they were going to conquer first. They were either going to conquer Jerusalem or the people of Ammon. And they were going to march out to this road to where they would have to go this direction for Judah, this direction for Ammon. And at that point, he brought his soothsayers and his his uh, spiritual people. And we talked about some of the ways that they would seek after their gods. And they sought after their gods. And their gods said, this is the way you're going to go. So no one back in Babylon knew which way they were going what they were going to do. They just marched out to the crossroads. Now, can you imagine being there at the crossroads? How many prophets would rise up and be speaking things not true, but speaking with authority, maybe even having props? (laughs) Those that are of the truth stay with the Word of God regardless of the events and the signs around them. But people that are false, they go with the signs, they go with the events, they go with the things that are going on around them. And um, I know you all know about this, but it's such a great example. For you look at all these people that want to be the doom doomsayers for the end of the world. You know the global warming, global cooling, ice melting. You name it, all these different things. Um, and so, whenever something happens, that is a sign. We have a—we uh, just had a hurricane that strengthened at an abnormally quick pace. This will immediately be blamed on global warming or global climate change. That's not what caused it at all. It just happened to have a very favorable pocket in which it developed. So, if you know anything about the weather, and if you looked at any of that, the winds, the shear winds, are the things that keep the hurricane under control. And where it came from, there were winds that sheared the top of it. So that kept it from from growing. Once it got out from the place where those sheer winds were, there was no winds. And there was heat in the water. And a lot of other favorable factors came in. And so it was able to go from a tropical storm to, a, I believe, a hurricane four. Very rapidly. In fact, more rapidly, I think, than um, anyone in... Uh, there, I think the cl- closest one to it was Hurricane Keith before that. That... Um, that had gone that, that rapidly. But they'll blame it on these kind of things. Um, they'll take pictures of big pieces of the glaciers falling off into the water. They won't tell you this happens all the time. This is normal. They even have a term for it, but they make it like, oh, this is a, this is a brand new thing. This is terrible. This is showing you all, all this stuff. But they've been talking about this since the 60s. The oceans were going to die in the 60s in 20 years. We hit the 80s, and the oceans were fine. Ted Danson, Danson uh, the uh, cheers guy, he was the spokesman for that. The oceans are dying, all this sort of stuff. We've got to change some things. And uh, that came and went. And I think we went right from there to the, the uh, global ice age. Newsweek had a big uh, spread on it, uh, the coming ice age. And the, the world was cooling. And um, we're going to be dead in 20 years. And, well, that, uh, that went away. And then it went to global warming. And then it went from there to global cooling. And then it went from global cooling to global warming again. And then while they're in global warming, it uh, got cold in a lot of places. So they decided, let's just call it global climate change. And no matter what happens, if it's cold, if it's hot, we can still blame it on this. But they've been prophesying the end of the world since the 60s. That was 60 years ago. And we're no closer to it. The coastlines are the same as they were in Florida, in New York. You know, Sometimes they go up a little bit, sometimes then they go back down again. And it's always a panic. When Venice, when the water was was rising, how many of you all saw the reports? They were a panic. Then all of a sudden, the water went down. And then it got lower than it had been. In fact, they couldn't even get those little gondolas through the streets anymore because the water was too low. And... (laughs) So this is what happens: it goes high and it goes low. I saw one report where they did, where they had fish in the in the uh, streets in Florida. anybody remember that? They had fish in the streets in Florida. What they don't tell you is it happens every year. They made it like it was a special thing. This is a global warming thing. This is the waters coming in. No, this is a certain time of the year when this thing happens and this water comes in and fish come into the streets. It's not uncommon that it happens in this particular area of Florida, but they won't tell you that. They just tell you the. The, the certain thing, so what they want to do is they want to take their prophecies and then take what's going on around and show this is showing you that this is this is here, but we have a word from God that says, "I will never destroy the world by flood so i say i I, I stay with that. <laughs> we had the book of Revelation, and all these things that are depicting are not in the book of Revelation. So I'm going with the Book of... I, I see them as false prophets and they point to false signs. If you have a bitter cold day in, in January, oh man, this is global cooling. This is global climate change. No, January gets cold. <laughs> I mean, that's what happens. When you have a vortex that comes down from the north, you get unusually cold weather. That's what happens when you have a vortex that comes down from the north. When you don't have that vortex, when you, don't, when you have the jet stream and it takes a different term, then you get warmer weather in the north. That's just what happened. It's happened all the time. We have a term for it. It's called Indian summer. <laughs> it's when it gets warm in the winter months and it's not supposed to be warm. I remember many times in February that I'm, I'm finding my short sleeve shirts to go running in. I think this is great because usually you don't run in short sleeve shirts in the middle of February. But we had this little warm spell that come on in and I don't, I don't, uh, feel like, oh man, it's because we've done all these different things. No. But see, this is what they do here. They want to take what's going on around them and try and back up their false prophetic words. You don't have to take what's going on around you to back up what God says because no matter how good it looks, God says, that's what's going to happen. Remember a prophecy that they were given in the when they came against an army and God said, go out there in the flatland and dig ditches. And they, well, I don't know why, but we're supposed to go out there and dig ditches. And, and God promised a great deliverance. And uh, and the water came down to the valley. We've talked about before the particular uh, event that would happen. That would actually have to happen days before they had reached there. And the water was on its way. And they just had to dig the ditches. And when the army looked on, they saw the ditches and they thought they saw blood. Oh man, they've all come in and they've killed each other. That's going down and get the spoil and they found an army ready to to uh, slaughter them and they uh, they did so and uh, a great victory was won. But you couldn't see any of that before, but you've got to stand with the, the word of God. Even with the um, uh, the word that came, uh, Elisha said this time tomorrow food is going to sell and he gave these really cheap prices. And one guy says that the windows of heaven were open. How could that happen? He's looking at the natural. Elisha wasn't looking at the natural. He's looking at the spiritual. He's looking at something else. And that's where we have to stay. We don't interpret the word in light of the events. We interpret the events in light of the word. That's the place where we have to make sure we stay. In um, chapter 22, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Now, son of man, will you judge? Will you judge the bloody city? Yes, show her all her abominations. Then say, thus says the Lord God, the city sheds blood in his own, in her own midst, that her time may come and she makes idols within herself to defile herself. You have become guilty by the blood which you have shed. They have shed, not their fathers, not anyone else. You have become guilty by the blood which you have shed and have defiled yourself with the idols which you have made. You have caused your days to draw near and have come to the end of your years. Therefore, I have made you a reproach to the nations and a mockery to all the countries. This is not about the idols your father's made. No, that has come into play. But you haven't changed that. You've gone after the same exact idols. You've built the same exact idols. Don't tell me that you're, you're uh, innocent in all this. They are guilty by the, sh- by the shed blood and by the defiled, uh, defiled by the idols they made. So you have caused your days to draw near. They did it. Basically, this is saying you have shortened the days until judgment. God may have spread it out a little bit more. God says, "Uh uh-uh. The way you're acting, I'm doing this now. History tends to remember the shedding of blood, but the cause is the corruption of the faith in God. Verse 5, it says, they were infamous and full of tumult. How much more will this be so for those churches who claim to be different but live and become like the world with fitting in a way of evangelism. And we talked about some of the things that the church today is succumbing to because we're trying to have evangelism by fitting in with the world so that the world feels comfortable and the world feels welcome and we're losing what makes us different. And so we're not going to proclaim against this sin. We're not going to declare this to be sin anymore. We're going to accept people in these sinful lifestyles because we want them to be welcome in the church. And that is a corruption of the faith in God. And that is what caused these things that are going on here in Israel. Where was the world to look for light if Jerusalem was filled with darkness? They were supposed to be the light of the world. We are supposed to be the light of the world. But if we allow darkness to filter in. See, the list of sins is secondary to the loss of faith. The loss of faith is what caused that list of sins. If they had held on to their faith, they wouldn't have fallen into those things. And just as Jerusalem went from the holy city to the blood city, good people can become evil. Just because we, we have been following the way of God doesn't mean that we'll stay that way. If I allow my faith in God to be affected, if I allow the world to come in and to compromise the things that I believe in, then this is what we, we've seen a lot of the pressure being put on. Church, you need to accept homosexual lifestyle as just a, another way of living. We've got churches that are accepting different genders. Now there's not just male and female. Like God said, I created a male and female. And now we've got, I don't know how many genders they have out there. More than I can count. But we're compromising these things. We've seen the very word of God compromise different uh, denominations have brought in different translations that, uh, boy, the, the things they do with the Word of God are terrible. They change words, they change meanings, they cut things out, they put things in and um, some of those translations we won't use. One of those translations was being used in the, the outfit that I was using for the bulletin covers and they kept using that. In fact, I would say half, got to the point where half of the bulletin covers were coming were from this translation. Now, I don't care if they hit that verse right. I won't use them. And um, there was a couple of times when they would have, oh, I like that verse and I like that picture they have. So I would actually go through and pull out that particular translation and write in. It took a lot of time to do it. But I would write in the right translation and just get rid of that one. Because I didn't like it. I wouldn't put it in there. And I wrote to the company and says, look, you're, you're pulling this. I know there's certain denominations that have accepted this. This is their, their thing. But there's a lot of us that see this is evil. And it is evil. It's the one, it's one of those translations that takes all the male references out to God and makes them female. Uh, all references to homosexual sexuality are gone. Most references to sin are gone. They just took out all sorts of stuff. It's, uh, it's terrible. And so they, uh, they said, well, we understand that. You know, we have a lot of different denominations we serve and we try and keep, uh, things in there for everybody. And they didn't change it. And so I canceled it. And so now what we do is um, instead of having a place that I can go and I can download different things, I just go up on Google and I find some pictures and I find some stuff we can put together. And so everything we've had in the bulletin for the last couple of years is just from the search that I make to uh, to pull that stuff. Because I'm not gonna, I'm not going to support a company that does it. And that's where we got a lot of our t- cartoons from. Um, so we don't get the cartoons from it. I have had to go other places. To find little cartoons to put in there because most people enjoy those those things that were, were going on. they had some other things that they would do and they would provide and it wasn 't that they were expensive; they were only about a hundred bucks a year but um i'm not i'm not doing it and i don 't know what they what's going on with them now, but we canceled that membership uh, a number of years ago and have just uh gone on another way to to find uh, ways to do it so we have to make sure that we do not bring the world in to our beliefs. We stand for the things of God because this is the beginning. Once you start compromising the faith, that's when the sins start being added in. And this is what happened with them. But the list of sins was secondary. And just as Jerusalem went from the holy city to the blood city, just know, good people can go this way. Don't, don't, don't allow your faith to be compromised. Once we compromise our faith, we can go from spiritual to carnal. That's the first step. Then we go from carnal to flesh. That's the second step. Then you go from flesh to evil. You don't just jump right from spiritual to evil. You hit a couple of places in between. Carnal is doing spiritual things by the flesh. And God says, all right, they look good, but they're carnal. They're not born of the Spirit. They won't last. God says they don't make it into heaven. There's no reward for what you're doing. It looks good, You're doing things to, to further the kingdom, but it's carnal. And then you go from that to, to total flesh acts. Well that's, we're not even trying to look spiritual anymore. This is just the flesh. And then we go from there to evil. This is, flesh is content to just being, me being evil. But when you get into this, span into evil, now I want to inflict evil on other people. When we get into this, we are seen as useless to God and dross to the, the smelter, as the Word of God put it. In our life, God intends to remove the dross and refine the silver. But without the connect, the correct relationship with God, the dross increases and in our value lessens. Ezekiel 22, 23 says, And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, say to her, You are a land that is not cleansed or rained on in a day of indignation. The conspiracy of her prophets In her midst is like a roaring lion tearing the prey. They have devoured people. They have taken treasure and precious things. They have made many widows in her midst. You can see this this is evil. Not just content with being evil themselves. They have to spread it to other people. So the picture is out of leaders of the people lined up in various ranks. Princes, priests, and prophets. And addressed all three of those groups. The princes were the government, the administrations. They no longer saw people as sheep entrusted to their care, but as prey upon whom they could feed by destroying their lives and seizing their wealth. The priests were those entrusted with worship and spiritual welfare of the nation. And they used these positions to gain things from the people instead of bringing the things to God that were God's. And the prophets in verse 28, those responsible for declaring God's word to his people, they no longer declared God's word, they declared other words. To them. And if verse thirty says, So I sought for a man among them who would make a wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land, that I should not destroy it, but I found no one. It is amazing to me that with all this evil going on in the land, he was still looking for an intercessor. Now, when things don't go well, people look to pass the blame, but God is showing the fault of every class group of people. Each one was guilty of something. All will share in the judgment. But even still, God looked for someone to stand in a gap, but none was found. Now, was none found because no one wanted to or no one was qualified to? Now, has the enemy ever put so much condemnation on you for your past or present shortcomings? You ever had that? Enemy comes in and starts saying, look what you did. Mm -hmm. Oh man, yeah, just putting guilt on you. If Judah did all this and God still sought for one to stand in the gap, how much more would he do the same for you? He talks about refining the silver. If you're going to refine the silver, you have to endure and seek out sound doctrine. You have to abhor what is evil. Don't connect with it. You cannot make a connection with what is evil. Many in the church today are making a connection with what is evil. They're not abhorring it. They're making a connection. Well, we have to reach out to this group of people. No, you need to make a stand for what God said is, is right. But they want to make a connection with it. You, can't make, you cannot make that connection. We need to pray for leaders, nation, church, leaders all over, that um, this connection with evil doesn't, doesn't occur. That's what the enemy wants. We then went to Ezekiel 23. This is where it all started. This is the history of Israel's idolatry using the two sisters. And her desire for other nations and their gods, even though God had made Israel his, they still played the harlot. And we see that, uh, Ahola played in verse five, played the harlot even though she was mine, and she lusted for her lovers and neighbors, neighboring Assyrians, who were clothed in purple, captains and rulers, all of them desirable young men, horsemen riding on horses. Thus she committed her adultery with them, all of them choice men of Assyria, and with all for whom she lusted, with all their idols, she defiled herself. She was, has never given up her harlotry brought from Egypt. Even though they may have thought we've walked away from the things of Egypt, God says, I still see stuff. I still see the signs. It's still there. The gods of the Egyptians were easily exchanged for the gods of the Assyrians. Because how easy is it to change one false thing for another false thing? That's not significant. If this is false, and I change it for this thing that is false. Big deal, but when we exchange the truth for what is false, that's really where things come. So that was the older sister. That was that was uh, Israel, and they came into judgment. Therefore, I delivered her into the hands of her lovers, into the hand of the Assyrians, whom she lusted. They uncovered her nakedness, took away her sons and daughters, and slew her with the sword. She became a byword among men, women, for they had executed judgment on her. Now the judgment, they, this judgment they've already seen. He gave them something they could already see and understand, and then he brought in the other sister, and said so she became more corrupt in her lust than than the first sister, and in her, in her harlotry more corrupt than her sister's harlotry. So they saw what had happened in the north, and they said, "Oh, we can do better," <laughs> and when they went after more harlotry than than she did, I put in. Uh, you're outlined at that time and it's there for you now. The root of all the wrongdoings of these two sisters is their unfaithfulness. We had the first commandment that God gave to make sh- to, then God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You have, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. They had a failure here, and a caused collapse in many other places. But there was a cause even before they became unfaithful, and that was forgetfulness. They forgot the faithfulness of God. And they became unfaithful. You don't become unfaithful and worship right off. They started with not honoring the Sabbath. Then their thoughts were filled with other things. They began to skip a sacrifice or a tithe. Some of the things that God commanded them to do in the feast, they ah, we don't really need to do that. And they began to slip away from all the things that God said to do. They forgot all the things that God had done for them. When friends walk away from you or betray you, don't you think on all the things you had done for them? Isn't that normal? You have a friend to walk away, well, what about uh, how I helped them out there and what I did for them over here? You begin to remember all those things and they forgot them. We expect that they had forgotten or just never, maybe just never meant anything to them. We tend to put more weight on what we think is going on today than what we know went on before. So we do, so do we also justify our walking away from friendships and such because I put more weight on what is going on now than what has gone on. God is constantly telling them the things that happened in the past hold a lot of weight and you need to be remembered of it, remembering it. You need to be reminded of it. You need to go over it all the time. He made monuments so that they would remember the good things and the bad things that had gone on before because he didn't want them to repeat the bad things and he wanted them to see how much God did for them and the good things. We know every every man's way is right in his own eyes. So we feel completely justified in the things that we do. No matter what we do. But Satan wants to taint our memory of things good in the past, which is why he made monuments, which is why he told them, tell your kids why this is here. And then they're supposed to tell their kids why this is here. Then they're supposed to tell their kids why this is here. Go over it with them so that they know. And they come on by and they say, well, I know why that's there. (laughs) And I know what that tells us. It's the importance of who we have in our lives. Because God gave us some people in our lives to help keep us stable, help keep us going in the right direction. And Satan hates that. We have to believe that what we feel about the present, or he wants us to believe that what we feel about the present is factual. But many times what I feel about the present isn't right because it's not born on what I know from the past. Come over to the cooking pot. He says in verse... One, this is where we wanted this one. Again, in the ninth year, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, write down the name of this day, this very day, the king of Babylon started his siege against Jerusalem this very day. This day comes to about January 15th, 588 BC. The siege lasted about 18 months. They had no, he had no natural way of knowing this. He's the only one in the city who knows it because Babylon came to the fork of the road and then made a decision which way they were going to go. So no one in the city knows which way they were going when they left. And he is the one who first found out they just started the siege today, which means they hit the crossroad. They made the turn toward Jerusalem. They came on down. And now this is the day they have begun the siege. And he even prophesies about a man who is going to escape. One person who's going to escape, make the way all the way back up there to them and tell them everything that happened. Imagine making that prophecy. Now the pot's using it as an example. It's filled with scum or we would call it rust and it ruins the meat that's cooked in it. We put great meat in there and the meat is cooked in this awful pot and it ruins the meat. This is the chapter where he's told his wife is going to die and he was not to mourn for her. This was an example to them. It was the delight of, of, of his eye taken away in the same way the delight of their eye and the delight of God's eye is being taken away. The delight of their eye was the city of Jerusalem and the temple. The delight of God's eye was Israel. And the delight is being taken away. And there will be no mourning. Verse 25 of 24. And you, son of man, will it not be in the day when I take from them their stronghold, their joy and their glory, the desire of their eyes, and that on which they set their minds, their sons and their daughters? On that day, one who escapes will come to you to let you hear it with your ears. On that day, your mouth will be opened to him. Who has escaped? You shall speak and no longer be mute. Thus you will be assigned to them, and they shall know that I am the Lord. Now Ezekiel will be mute until the report comes. Either he is mute completely, or he is mute. No words from the Lord would come for Judah. this, this report that would come from the person who escaped does not happen until chapter thirty three in verse twenty two. So we got a little ways to go before that happens. Time wise, you're looking at eighteen months until the city falls. Now words do come in the chapters that follow. The chapters that come in between, we got a lot of words that happen in there. So that either he was, if he was completely mute, then perhaps he just wrote them down and then people read them, or he was only able to speak words about other nations, and not speak words about Israel, or Judah. That could be the way that it was. Um, Don't know exactly. Could be either way. And both would seem to. To be complete, so either he just wrote these words down, they come in these, these chapters, the city of Tyre, Ammon, all these different ones. In fact, the, there's a prophecy about Ammon that immediately comes next to this because this is the one that the Babylonians didn't go after. They went after Jerusalem. But he says, he's coming for you too. You're sitting over there gloating about how Jerusalem has fallen. He's coming for you too. Not only are the words we speak about God a message to those around, so also is how we react to the things that go on in this world. And how we obey the words of God. They need to see us react like the heart of God to the things that are happening. There ought to be sadness when we see things done that are against the word of God. Because the world does watch us. So in summary, it is not our fault. But God gave them a history lesson that says it is your fault. What the fathers did, you continue to do. He gave them five reasons of why the things you did five reasons of why, just from the things that you did. Here's what you did. Here's five things. Maybe we were right. What was the next one? There are events in the day that seem to indicate that the false prophet's message might be right. So they were saying, it's not our, it's not our fault. God says, it is your fault. They come back and say, I don't think this is going to happen. Look at what's happening around the world. God says, it is going to happen. I made this little note. I don't think I got into this when we were there and we're going to get into this more so as in the series we're going to be doing here on Sunday coming out. But you ever heard the term prophesy according to your faith? Mm -hmm. Most people prophesy based on what they know or can see in the natural. I don't know if you know that. But most people who give a prophecy, it will be based on some things they know about the person. There's a certain uh, familiarity that they have with them. Many times what is heard in the Spirit is understood through what we know naturally. I may hear something in the Spirit, but I know this person and I begin to understand it from what I know they have naturally. But I'm prophesying according to my faith. My faith level in that area is not real high. So I prophesy according to sight. Just like there is faith according to sight, there is prophecy according to sight. Ezekiel and Jeremiah prophesy based only on what they saw in the Spirit having nothing to do with what they see naturally. Now, that takes a little while to get there. Don't condemn the people that are prophesying based on sight. They may hear something from... That's why you always have to judge a word of prophecy. Always got to judge it. Because people that are first stepping out into the area of prophecy, first speaking things, they they will do a lot of things based on sight. You may be going through a crowd and you see somebody who looks sad and come up with a prophecy to encourage a sad person. Because you saw them as sad. Uh, th- that can happen. Now, that doesn't mean that the prophecy is wrong. It just means that the prophecy is way down on the, the scale of being sh- uh, weak and not strong. But if you don't step out and do some of those things, then you never grow up into the into the others. I don't know where Ezekiel started. I don't know what kind of things he was prophesying in the beginning. I only know where he is at here when he's over there in the in the land of um, uh Babylon. But we'll get into more of those things down the road. That's just a little preview of things to come. Amen. The sword of the Lord. The siege has begun. Ezekiel couldn't know there's any other way. He had a word of knowledge that this was going on. And he felt comfortable enough to say it. I don't need to see anything because I saw it in the Spirit. I heard it in the Spirit. I'll speak it out. We had the fork in the road. The decision of which which way to go. Many times we have a fork in the road and a wrong prophecy has steered people in the wrong direction. Do you make decisions at each fork or do you compare the choices to what God has told you to do? The example would be Babylon should have been leaving Babylon saying, God, where are we supposed to go first? And God would have told him to come to the fork. There's no divination. This is the direction we have to go. And then we'll come up on up right, over here because God would have told him. Would God have told him? Well, he told a uh, heathen Greek king which way to go? In a vision. This is how you will conquer the world. And he followed that vision. If he would do that to a heathen Greek king, he would do it to this king too. If you would listen. We have to make sure we do not become like the world. It is no way to win it. Israel was not supposed to become like the world. If we are to be the light of the world, our light must be pure. And we have to make sure that the, the silver we have in us, though it may be covered with some dross, We have to allow God to take care of that dross and to refine that that silver. Endure and seek out sound doctrine. Abhor what is evil. Don't connect with it. Pray for the leaders of the nation. These are things we do to help refine the silver that we have. If God was looking for someone to stand in the gap in their day, He's going to look for it now, and maybe that's one of us. Maybe that's all of us. But if we are compromised by the world, are we in a position to need it? Intercession? More than able to give it? If I need intercession, I am not in a position to get it. If Moses was guilty of the sin that Israel was guilty of, he could not have stood in the gap and been an intercessor. He then takes it back to, the, to where it all started in the tale of the sisters. Because sometimes we lose perspective and we think that what's going on now is the only reality. And he says, no, look at way back over here. This is where your unfaithfulness began. And that unfaithfulness began because you became unremembering. You didn't remember the things. You became forgetful. And the cooking pot, they had said before, we're in a cooking pot. And God says, yep, you're in a cooking pot, but not like you were saying. You're in a cooking pot that can't protect you anymore. You're in a cooking pot that is full of rust, full of corruption, and it's going to pass that corruption right on to the rest. And when the meat is poured out, I won't even shed a tear. Just as Ezekiel was not to shed a tear. This uh, last third of these, these prophecies deals with a lot of shifting of blame, not taking responsibility, being compromised with the world. And these are things that God told them to stay away from and it's certainly there for us now to stay away from. If I base my judgments on things in the past of others, alive or dead, can I expect God to change and extend to me the same lack of mercy I have shown to others. I have to make sure that I am in a place that I am always extending mercy. If I am extending judgment, I am setting the stage for judgment to come to me. If I judge other people on things in their past and don't let them go, then I am setting the stage for my past to be judged and not be let go. Because the mercy that I walk in is the mercy that is extended. And we saw that in some of the parables that Jesus even gave in the New Testament. Many lessons we can learn from Ezekiel. I hope you enjoyed the, the time of going through these. And, uh, it took us three weeks just to look at the review in the, the first one, but I, I hope seeing the overall picture of things in the progression that uh, helps you to understand where God was going with this. But this ends all the prophecies that are made about Israel. From here He's going to go on, Ammon, Tyre, and the other nations that are, are surrounding and condemning them until the word comes that Jerusalem has fallen. And then we switch gears again. And now His mouth has been opened and He begins to speak words of the restoration, the coming temple, the coming building, the things that will be there. And we don't have full understanding of all that He was prophesying of. Can't even picture how this thing is going to go we can't even put it whether is this millennial is this tribulation where exactly is this but he's got enough clout in my book that whatever he said whatever he saw i believe that as he wrote it is how it's going to happen so we'll have to wait to see the fulfillment of that but father we thank you for the things we learned from the book of ezekiel from the man that you put here during a very difficult time in israel's history and a man who was able to have his life completely taken over by the prophetic call that He had and loved the people despite their sin, despite their love for what was false. He had a great love for those people. Some of the words that He delivered were difficult for Him, but He delivered them just as You gave it to Him because He was faithful. I thank You that we can mimic that faithfulness in all the things that we speak for You and all the things that we stand for. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.